Hello everyone. As many of us are currently confined at home in many places of the world, and while we keep in our minds and in our hearts those who have no choice but to be at risk from the ongoing worldwide pandemic because they're doctors, nurses, workers, homeless, incarcerated, or in any other precarious situation, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast to use this time to reflect and organize. The concept is very simple. Every day, we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. We thank you very much for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone, today's guest for the Daily Phenomenalist podcast series uh, is uh, Sofia Azeb, who's uh, a recurring uh, contributor to the various media that the Phenomenalist have been, uh, have been using throughout the years, uh, for many years now. Uh, she is a provost postdoctoral fellow in, in, uh, at the University of Chicago, and uh, she's currently working on a book project uh, so far called Another Country, Constellation of Blackness in Afro-Arab Cultural Expression, that uh, theorizes how blackness is articulated and mobilized by African-American, African and Afro-Arab writers, artists, and political figures in North Africa and Europe, during the post-war 20th century. Hello, Sofia. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm well, considering all good, things good. considered. Well, uh, so that's, uh, it's, a, it's a podcast uh, series that requires very little work of me, so pretty much the only work I have to do is to ask you what is the decolonial moment that you thought about? So when you first asked me this question, I started with really big picture things that we have spoken about before, um, mostly related to Palestinian futures and the potential for uh, a Palestinian futurity that isn't dependent on something like a nation state. Um, And so I guess, you know, without rehashing all of the things that we've discussed and that I've been so happy to publish in The Funambulist before, um, it just sort of got me to thinking about my Palestinian past, in particular, the, the moments in which I've tried to speak to my grandmother, um, who's lived in the United States since the mid-1950s, um, and who grew up in a little village called Birnabala, which is in the West Bank of Palestine, quite near Kalandia checkpoint today. Um, And whenever I think about Palestinian futurity, it really is based on what I know about our family's history in Birnabala, which is not much. Um, So I think the last piece I contributed to the Funambulist was uh, on who we will be when we are free. And it was really focused on what makes us Palestinian um, beyond our basis in a shared catastrophe, which is the Nakba, uh, 
and the forced displacement of Palestinians all over the world. And I'm obviously a diaspora Palestinian. You can hear my lovely American accent. Uh, <laughs> I was born and raised in the U.S. Uh, because in part uh, of this huge migration story of, of both sides of my family. Um, and I remember after my grandfather died, my, my mother's father and my mother's family is the Palestinian side. Um, I was really curious. I was 13 years old and I had been raised knowing about Palestine. I'd been raised in a very political household, but I really didn't know where my family fit into this broader story of Palestinian migration and the efforts that they made towards our liberation uh, as a Palestinian people. I knew that we were a large family. I knew that we still had family in Palestine. I'd never met them um, because I'd never been able to go with my family, uh, those who were still able to access uh, their, their village back home. Uh, and so I started to ask my grandmother questions uh, about our family, uh, how she grew up, uh, the moment that she was in, um, before, during, and after the Nakba. Uh, and I, I sort of quickly realized that she was quite reticent to talk about her departure from Palestine. But she was so animated when she was telling me about our family during the British Mandate period and, and before uh, 1947. And I think everything that I've kind of based my politics and writings on Palestine today on has been in part because of these conversations I had with my grandmother when I was 13 and 14 years old. Um, and that to me kind of signifies this broader link of, of how those of us who do decolonial work think through um, our own positions in the broader global decolonization movements throughout the 20th century, but also the kind of attachments that really necessitate um, the politics that we end up kind of coming towards as, a, as you know, I don't want to say adults because it's not really generational. Obviously, I started this when I was a teenager, but how we come to these politics is so deeply intertwined with our interpersonal knowledge and relationships to these these political moments and these decolonial potentials. Um, so I suppose when I asked who would we be, who will we be when we are free, I was thinking about my Falaha grandmother uh, who did not learn how to read or write in Arabic or English until she began to teach herself after arriving in the U.S. Um, she had, she raised 10 children, uh, seven of which she bore herself with my grandfather, uh, three of whom were her stepchildren. And she produced this, literally, right, this huge black family block, um, and we live all over the place now. And all of us are kind of, I think, solely united in our ideas on Palestinian liberation and futurity through my grandmother's ability to recollect and transmit these kinds of um, these histories to us, these fam this family lore that we really were not able to access on our own. Um, 
So I suppose I would have to say when I think about decolonization and like particular decolonial moments for me, something like historical memory that we carry through uh, without necessarily having the full picture is something that that is super important for me personally. And if you hear uh, little jingles, that's my cat who is sitting in my lap right now. So sorry about that, everybody. Um, so I suppose they make obliged. Yes. <laughs> um, so I think that's kind of where I really, where my mind kept going after you asked me that question initially. Um, yeah, that was a monologue. Sorry. <laughs> it's it is it is meant it is, it is meant to be a, a monologue, uh, and um, and perhaps I can I can just uh, uh, ask one more question, which is just. Perhaps can you can you tell us a little bit more about the who will who will we be when we're free uh, text that you wrote uh, beautifully for us because maybe uh, some I'm mean, I'm sort of guessing more people have access to the podcast and the magazine itself so it would be great for you to to tell us a little bit more about this Palestinian futurity definitely um, who will we be when we are free. The sort of uh, impetus for writing that were was a dissatisfaction I had with the presumption that Palestinians are a people in any coherent sense of uh, the concept uh, beyond our sort of uh, proximity to the Nakba, the proximity to displacement. Um, and what I really mean by that is not that I, I'm against the idea that we are all a people and that we share a common goal, um, but that we should never presume all Palestinians share a common goal. Um, uh, and, and this is really, I think, just very simply, I think at its base uh, is not even in a grander political scheme, although we do know this very well, that many Palestinians are happily sort of willing to contribute to the Israeli occupation for small benefits. This is not unique to Palestine or Palestinians. This is the condition of coloniality. Those of us who may reproduce the conditions uh, under which we've been oppressed, this is something that is, uh, this is as old as, a, you know, the fight against colonization is itself. Um, but I, I also was concerned with the fact that Uh, many Palestinians who are kind of really present in these national and international conversations around the world, particularly Palestinians in the diaspora, tend to be from families that had wealth before the Nakba, that had land before the Nakba. Uh, we point to this Palestinian peasant uh, as kind of a rallying cry, let's protect our, you know, our land, let's Uh, cultivate our land and come together as a people who have been displaced from this land uh, without recognizing that, of course, all Palestinians do not have access um, to land, to cultivating the land, uh, even before massive displacement occurred in 1947. Uh, we don't, we tend to want to obfuscate racial differences amongst Palestinians. Uh, in the diaspora, but also in Palestine itself. Uh, for instance, the very large community of Afro-Palestinians that are descended 
um, from the long legacy of the trans-Saharan uh, and trans-Mediterranean slave trade. Um, these are structures that, that Palestinians, like most other peoples in the world, have participated in, and that I believe we must recognize in order to give ourselves the strength to name the differences within our community as a method uh, for moving forward uh, as a people, right? More cognizant of the distinctions amongst ourselves in order to come together under this uh, larger scope in the quest towards Palestinian liberation. And for me, of course, my idea of Palestinian liberation is, again, quite specific to my family's own history um, as peasants, uh, as people who worked the land, who still have access to our historic lands, which again is a unique and privileged position within the larger Palestinian diaspora. Certainly Palestinians who languish in refugee camps do not enjoy this privilege. Um, and so by recognizing these distinctions and these differences amongst us and naming them for what they are, it doesn't mean that we tear down the concept of a Palestinian people, but we, are able to embolden ourselves uh, to come together and acknowledge these distinctions as a method for, for building our future as Palestinians towards whatever uh, uh, our idea of a Palestinian liberation may look like. Um, I, think, I think that was really the impetus for that piece that I wrote uh, in the Futurisms issue of the Funambulus, and I was so glad to have the opportunity to do so because I had been reading Mahmoud Darwish uh, in the presence of absence and these sorts of notions of his lack of proximity to home while in exile really struck me as really uh, similar to the way that my grandmother would avoid talking about the Nakba and after and really wanted to tell us about her family before, right? So what it meant to be in Palestine and know oneself as Palestinian rather than being forced out of Palestine um, and having to raise a family that will never be able to have that access and that proximity to home that she did. Yeah. Great. Well, Sophia, thank you so much for yet another collaboration for the Finambulist. I, I forgot, have forgot how many it's been, but quite, quite many. And, and even some of them, readers might not be able to 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 know to know about them but uh, uh they're also happening in the in behind the scenes uh so thank you for being the second one of this series uh, and uh, and best of luck with uh, with everything yes good luck during the plague everybody stay safe <laughs> that's all for today find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series and if you're a subscriber to The Finalist, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website. Thank you very much and take care.